Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good afternoon, everybody. How is everyone today? Well, I hope you're doing good because I'm doing I'm doing just as good. Still hot, but good. Kind of cooler today. A whole 95. Down from, what, 105, 96? Anyway, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. Hang on one second. There we go. Okay. And I'm going to be the owner of the California. I'm going to be the owner. And <laughs> yeah, that's already starting out great, isn't it? And I'm the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We're 45 strong up and down the state of California. Uh, that, that means if you have a paranormal need, we can get to you because we're in almost every county. And if we're not in, near your county, we will get there because we're two, we're two or three counties away. So uh, contact us at CaliforniaHaunts.org or CaliforniaHauntsRadio.org, which, which is the website for the radio show. All right. Uh, for those of you watching from Facebook, please, if you like what you see tonight, Please be sure to follow. If you're watching from Twitch, please be sure to follow. And if you're watching from YouTube and you like what you see, you should check out the rest of the videos because there's almost there's more than 270 videos over there on different topics. Because because I'm a journalist, photojournalist, and I like looking, hearing, you know, interviewing people with different topics. I just don't like paranormal stuff. I like doing other things as well. So I think there's something over there for everybody. So if you'd like to subscribe, there's the little ghost down in the bottom right-hand corner with the Sherlock Holmes hat on and the magnifying glass. And uh, click on that, and that'll make you a subscriber over at, you, over, over at the YouTube page. Anyway, well, I have a fun guest tonight. I heard him on another show. His his name is Bruce. I hope he's got his name right, because you have him, him about names. Bruce, J- <laughs> Bruce J.B. I think I got his name right. Well, he can correct me. And... Uh, He's got a great book. My father grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and my dad always had stories about the Great Lakes and, and ghosts and, and things like that. You know, the stories about the, the, the captains who uh, were piloting the ships on, you know, the, the barges and stuff on the Great Lakes. And my dad always had these stories. And Mr. JV has written a book about that called Heroes and Haunts of the Great Lakes. And I thought it'd be great to have him on to talk about that. So without further ado, let me bring him on. Uh, Genvy. Genvy, that's right. Sorry, Bruce Genvy. I apologize. No, I'm horrible no. with the news. I'm horrible, horrible, horrible. So tell me about yourself, sir. Um, you want the story of my life? Yes. <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a nutshell. Uh, grew up in western Michigan, rural town. Graduated high school with 62 kids. Four years at Michigan State and went to Detroit to discover the big mountain of career. I used to write national advertising for Pontiac and Cadillac, which is what I always wanted to do was to write car advertising. Please excuse the voice. I'm just getting over the the local uh, version of the crud, and it's not quite as it should be yet, but it's there. Um, After 20 years in advertising, I walked in one morning and found myself downsized. And uh, I decided at that point, after laying in bed for three days, I decided to start a magazine about boating. 
I had a boat. I had all the software I needed to do a magazine. I was at the time teaching uh, computer graphics part-time at U of M Dearborn. Um, it seemed like a logical thing to do. Loved history. So I got a couple, three of my boating friends together, and we started this magazine. It was never a super profitable magazine, but I have always referred to it as the best job I never had because it was always a labor of love and there was never a big profit there. But we had we had a good time. We had breakfast with governors. We had phone calls from senators. We dealt with local officials. Uh, we The whole purpose of the magazine was to give the boater or the land yachter in the Great Lakes region, places to go. It was it was a travel and history magazine. Here's the town, here's a place to go or to stay or to shop or to eat what the restaurants are like, and we cover the local history. And we discovered along the way a lot of very interesting stories. Now, we publish these in the magazine every month uh, for that town. Every town has a history. And they were a sidebar to the main story. Uh, after the end of the magazine, after 9-11, the death of tourism and things like that, when people weren't interested in traveling for quite a while, um, I, I collected these stories out of the back issues of the magazines, at least the ones I had written, and, um, and put them into this lovely and yet decorative book. And that's it's the Heroes and Haunts of the Great Lakes. It's a collection of the sidebar stories. It's not just about ghosts. It's not just about the paranormal. There's, I think you re you read the book. You bought it. Uh, thank you. I, I need the money. But the point being is it's also a lot of heroic stories. There are stories in here of plain people living in plain little towns 100, 150 years ago who rose to the call of action and change the course of history. And I think that's important stuff. <clears throat> Excuse me while I replenish here. Sure. After the magazine ended, I did um, <clears throat> I did a little computer uh, uh, support firm for a while to support myself while I launched a career into fiction. Uh, fiction is the hardest thing there is to write. Uh, you can always blame advertising. The client said I had to do it. The Chamber of Commerce said I had to do it. But when you write fiction, it's all on you. And I wrote, um, I've had to have a small stack here to, uh, to demonstrate to you things that I've written. And uh, we can talk about each one a little bit later if you want. That's sure. a good one. That won some awards. That's Angela's Coven. And the most popular one is My Father's Ashes. And these are all available on Barnes & Noble or Amazon. Just search my name. Anyway, uh, so I started writing fiction. And uh, the, the book sold and sold quite well. And finally, when I hit retirement age, quite frankly, I'd had enough of the book business. And um, I retired. My wife and I moved back to the west side of the state. We live in a retirement community. And part time, I'm driving a handicap bus for the elderly four afternoons a week. And I haven't written a thing since. Well, I did write one book after I retired, How to Fix America. There it is. It's got some crazy ideas, actually some of them very entertaining and humorous, as to how to fix the things that we're in now, or at least we were before the 2020 election. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, there's a lot in there about how to correct Congress and and the most popular idea I, I get email on it almost every day was we have to have a campaign finance reform and limit the amount of money that comes into a campaign, and we need to limit where the people live. Send congressmen off. They've got to have more and more money to live in the right place, and they're taking money from people they shouldn't be. I propose 
that we have a gated community, actually several around the DC area. And basically we have a closed gated community of manufactured housing. They can live in much like a college dorm or married housing at the college. It would be, I'm proposing that we have a congressional trailer park. And if you don't want to live in a traditional trailer park, maybe this job is no longer for you. Mm-hmm. But uh, something intrigues me about seeing Nancy Pelosi wheel out her trash in the bin right next to the freshman senator from Iowa. So anyway, it's a thought. So it's all in there. You can, fi- you can find me on the page. It's a good thought. I, war- I warned you this was going to be strange. Absolutely. But it's cool. You know that? It's just like I apologize for not getting your name right. I'm going to apologize all night for that. I'm so sorry. I want to ask you, because for the people that don't live near the Great Lakes, they have no clue what the Great Lakes are like. So can you describe for people that have never been there or have no, or, or, you know, because they're thinking, you know, it's a lake lake. They're, they're not thinking it's like a oh. huge, huge thing. So, so what are the Great oh. Lakes like? There is so much misconception. They are inland seas. Make no mistake about it. Uh, Lake Superior goes to depths of 1,200 feet, and it's so cold down there, there are still bodies, complete bodies floating around from shipwrecks that um, happened 100, 150 years ago. Mm-hmm. They never decay. They're below the freezing line. Um, there are waves on these lakes that can break 1,000-foot ships in half and have done so on a regular occasion. Uh, you can't see across them. In fact, uh, back when the post office was doing a, a big thing about uh, lighthouses, they wanted to do, they got tricked into doing the thing on lighthouses of the Great Lakes. And I was helping to judge the art through Great Lakes Cruiser magazine. And the first question I had, someone from California said, well, why do you have so many lighthouses in the Great Lakes? Can't they just navigate from the lights of the cottages on shore? <laughs> well, no, these uh, some of these lakes are 250 miles long, 80 miles across. You're not going to throw a rock that far. And like I said, we're talking steel ships that are a thousand feet long. The Edmund Fitzgerald was 750 feet and it was on the bottom in seconds after it snapped in half. The Carl D. Bradley broke in half, but the back half steamed, continued to steam several miles on down the lake before it succumbed to the water. So a lot of interesting stories there. Now, the Great Lakes also have their own weather patterns, don't they? Oh, they create their own weather patterns. Right, right, right. Um, an area I live in, I live I live in the western side of uh, central Michigan, northern Michigan. Uh, I'm about a half hour north of Grand Rapids uh, and about 45 miles inland from the Big Lake. And when I was a kid growing up, as it, as it, as it is now, uh, getting 10 inches of snow overnight is not a life-threatening event. It's a major inconvenience but it doesn't stop the world. Um, and I know in lots of other places in the state, they throw salt at a quarter inch of snow and panic. So yeah, it, it, they create their own snow squalls. They create their own weather patterns. Uh, thunderstorms will rip across the lake from Wisconsin and they'll either intensify mm-hmm. or they'll peter out on the way. And this is the lake that's causing this and you really can't predict the weather as to what's gonna happen. It is very unpredictable that way. Lake Erie, is, is treacherous to sail in any kind of severe weather, um, especially the western end because it's so shallow. Uh, the waves start, they get what's called a square wave. Um, we, you get out in the ocean and go, oh, 35 foot wave, big whoop. Well, you know, in the ocean, you've got a big fetch to get there and a fetch to get back. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
we're talking on the Great Lakes, a square wave, the wave is as high as it is wide, or it is deep as they would say. So you're gonna climb 35 feet and then down the other side, all within 35 feet. Uh, that's a heck of a carnival ride. So yeah, they're, they're extremely dangerous. Every year, yacht racers come, from, especially from the East Coast, and go, well, we'll just come on and take on these lakes. You just watch us. And every year, they're the ones who wind up on the bottom, and then the, uh, the lifeboats get picked up by the Coast Guard. They, they completely underestimate the power of these Great Lakes. I have seen Lake Erie, and it is incredible. It's unbelievable. I mean, you actually think you're on an ocean beach when you're there. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's what people here don't realize. I mean, the lakes here, like, like I forget how big our Lake Tahoe is up here from where I'm at, but that would fit, fit a little tiny corner of that lake. Well, the big difference there is that these are fresh water too, like Tahoe is. Mm -hmm. um, they're they're not a saltwater based lake mm -hmm. uh, be, because of that. Um, you don't have a lot of the the wildlife, if, if you fall into a Great Lake, ain't nothing down there going to kill and eat you. Mm -hmm. Can't say that so much of the ocean. Um, the salt gets into everything on the, on the ocean. You don't have that problem here. It's all fresh water. In fact, the Great Lakes comprised, was it like 20% of the world's fresh water reserve? So it's a valuable resource. It's been, it has been the cause of all sorts of settlement, all sorts of uh, fights, all sorts of riots, and even wars as to who's going to control the bounty of the Great Lakes. Let's talk about some of that history that you mentioned a little while ago. Can you give me some history about, say, um, well, pick a lake. Well, I'll tell you what. You read the book. You know your, your, your listeners. You name a story that it picks you, and, and, um, and I'll give you some background on it. What's one you want to hear about? Well, let's hear about something out of, um, the, uh, what's it, what's Outside of Wisconsin. Outside of Wisconsin, specifically? Yeah, yeah. let's hear something like that. I, I, I don't have my cue cards with me for that. Okay. Uh, but there, there are all sorts of, there are, there are haunted, there are heroes. Up, up in the western end of Lake Superior, one of my favorite stories is the uh, Great Tugboat Race of 1871. Did you remember that one? Yes. Okay, this is the city of Duluth in Superior, Wisconsin. Duluth, Minnesota, Superior, Wisconsin. Sister cities sharing a port behind the world's largest sandbar that protected it from Lake Superior. Um, but the only entrance at the time was the city of Duluth. And I'm sorry, the city of, of um, uh, Superior, Wisconsin. Duluth was kind of landlocked. Uh, Great Marsh Mog Bog Islands floated in the north end of the bay and shipping didn't get up there because they came in, went to the first empty dock and a lot of it stayed right there in, in Superior, Wisconsin. So the people of Duluth figured, well, my God, we're going to dig our own canal and dig it straight up from the north end here right out to the water. Well, the people of Duluth, A, didn't want that. Uh, they were also worried that it would change the water flow of things and that now the um, the the bog islands that float in and pose navigational hazards would drift to the south and block their end up. So they went to the uh, Army Corps of Engineers, which in those days controlled all things like this, and they seeked an injunction against the city of Duluth from building a new canal. Back in those days, the law said you had to serve a paper copy of the, of the writ or of the uh, subpoena in order to make it stop. 
Uh, it couldn't be the word itself. It had to be the written version. And uh, the people of Superior of Duluth figured this one out quickly. And just as you will read in several stories in here, the people got together. They closed the churches. They closed the schools. Um, church bells rang. People, every people showed up at the uh, at the canal they'd started, but hadn't finished yet, with buckets and shovels and rakes. And in a matter of a couple of days, they had dug a canal that you could float a tugboat through. How and how fast did they did it? They completed the the um, the, uh, the the channel a mere few hours before the actual writ showed up on the train because the only way to get it there was by train it was mm -hmm. faster than pony express so it said nothing about uh, stopping a canal that was already existed or one that needed to be improved it said don't 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 dig a new one so that's where people had dug in and done the impossible in a matter of a day or two they dug the canal now the upside of the story is the bog islands immediately shot out through the water and went out to lake superior and sank and never reformed in the Duluth side. Today, both sides are as popular as they ever were. If you see pictures of of um, of of, uh, the, of the Wisconsin Minnesota side, Duluth, Minnesota, you always see that aerial lift bridge. That is the original canal. The version of it today, it's been improved a number of times. It can now accommodate thousand footers. Um, when I say thousand footer, I mean a freighter that with a keel, one thousand feet long. Um, but that's the original canal. That's what was built by the people with the shovels and the buckets and the snow shovels, and that's that's what they did. So never underestimate the power of a people united. When you guys started researching all this stuff, what, was it hard to gather the information and to be able to tell what you know what was truth and what what wasn't truth? Uh, you always have to approach things with a grain of salt. And we always looked at our source. A lot of our sources came from the local library, and that helped a lot. Uh, then it gets flushed out a little bit by local legend. Um, the hardest one I ever had was Lorraine, Ohio. Um, did you? I don't know if you read that. That, that was the Finger of God story. Well, yeah. In the midnight, in the mid nineteen twenties, unexpectedly, no advanced weather warning, on a hot summer day an F5 tornado came ripping off the lake and destroyed Lorraine, Ohio. It was absolutely devastated. We're talking about horses and carriages flying down Main Street, uh, hundreds of people killed in, in movie theaters in downtown. Uh, the town was devastated, all roads were blocked. And what they did was, there was a kid. Now, you can't see it because this is my room here, as you can tell in retirement. My guitars are here, my piano's here. My computers are here. My ham radios are here. I'm a big ham radio operator. And uh, there was a kid who was a ham radio operator in this town of Lorraine. And somehow, in the middle of the night, in the middle of the storm, he went out to the what was left of the tree in his front yard and strung a wire through it, got on the air, and called for help. And the message got to Cleveland. And a tugboat full of doctors and nurses and medical supplies sailed off into the storm, what was left of it, and because the only way in was by water. And they were the first responders who came to Lorraine, Ohio. I had trouble researching this story because I love old buildings. I think I think they're time travelers. They, that's a one-way trip, but they're time travelers. And 
every time we looked at something, nothing existed prior to 1924. 19, oh, this was built in 1925. That was built in 19, nothing before 1924. What happened? No houses, no buildings, no nothing. They were leveled by the tornado. So that was the hardest one we ever had to research because any history had been erased. When you talk about old buildings, because as a ghost hunter, I go into a lot of old buildings. And yeah, I, I imagine. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you feel the same way I do, but I marvel because you wonder, or even look at the mountains, you know, when you see a big, tall mountain, because it's been there for so long. And I always marvel at wondering, gee, think of all, everything that, that that building has seen or that mountain has seen. Very much so. In fact, um, I also run the Facebook page for my high school graduation group mm -hmm. and our, our small little town of Howard City, Michigan. And um, I've got some fantastic picture postcards of the town circa 1901, 1906. And you'd be amazed at some of the buildings that are still there. And how do you know it's the same building? Because it still has that big stone edifice on top that says bank number two. It's still there. Um, I have been in, I think probably the, the scariest building I've been in is probably the Escanaba House in um, the Ludington House, Ludington House in Escanaba, Michigan. I'm sorry, it's this is Eastern time zone. This is this is the after nine o'clock version of Bruce Gen V you get when you call this late. You know, oh, old boy. people should be in, we should be in bed this by this time, you know. <laughs> but um, anyway, yes, the Ludington House <laughs> was a hotel, uh, one of the old style wooden hotels, you know, basically when they were running steamships on the Great Lakes, you go, well, why would you, well, we could go here, we could go there, and there's all these places and these wonderful resorts we could stay at around the Great Lakes, like the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island. Well, why do you think those places were built? They were built so that the steamships would have a place to sell tickets to go to. That's why those were built, you know. Hey, there's a great resort. You want a ticket for it? And that's the steamship traffic fed the uh, the development of tourism in the Great Lakes. But the Ludington House was built at the same era. All wood. You walk down the hallways and the floors are like a roller coaster. You know, if I do that from back here, get a better effect. There you go. The uh, the floors are like that because they're old. The place has got to be about 150 years old these days, at least. And it has a, a history of haunting. First of all, it was a getaway from any of the Chicago gangsters in the 20s. Um, you always knew when Machine Gun Kelly was in residence because there's a turret on the side of the, it's one of those decorative turrets, three or four stories tall with a room in the top. Well, in the room at the top, the windows would be open and machine guns would be sticking out of them because that's where his guards would sit. And they would protect Machine Gun Kelly when he was in town on vacation. They would go there, remember, because it was not Illinois and probably not Wisconsin. And there were no warrants for their arrest in those days. <laughs> Al Capone was a regular visitor. You can tell Al was in town because that giant Cadillac of his would be parked right in the front of the window of the restaurant so that he could sit be in the restaurant behind the car and eat safely. So that's, that's some of the things that went on there. Um, I spent a night ghost hunting there. They've, they had all sorts of stories that were amazing. Elevators that would sometimes run by themselves and no one would get off. They had uh, door, interior rooms, like in the center of the hotel, all of a sudden fire safety doors that would just blow open and then drift closed. We didn't find any of that. I, th I think I've said in, in many an interview, I suffer the ghost hunter's curse. And that's when I'm around, the ghosts take a vacation. They don't want to be found or discovered or seen. So that's right. that's where I am. 
Um, but in this particular night, um, my wife did not have a great desire to ghost hunt. Um, we can talk about that later because she's still within earshot, I think. Anyway, she did not have the, so she hid in the, in the we stayed, she stayed in our room. I went out in the hallway with a digital video camera and worked with stills and worked with videos, did not catch anything. Sat on the floor at the head of the hallway where I was told there was, had been some activity. And yet I did hear and experience it, but I did not capture it. It, it, it evaded the camera. I could hear, one of the complaints was that people were, someone's going around at night rattling doorknobs on these hotel door room doors. Now they're the old wooden doors with, with the mortise style locks and everything and the big handles. And, and someone would come in around and it was like they were checking all the locks. And um, I sat there and I could hear down at the far end of the hallway, two or three clicks. And then about a five, 10 seconds later, I could hear another one and maybe four or five clicks. And it was, you couldn't see it, but you could hear it. Someone was rattling doorknobs coming down the hallway towards me. This got rather nerve wracking as you got to be a couple of rooms away and it stopped. And all of a sudden it crossed the hallway and started rattling the doorknobs all the way back the other direction. That gave me pause to think. Um, they've had problems in the past where um, one of the stories that led me to do this in the first place was mm -hmm. the owner, uh, this, this guy and his son were staying in one of the rooms, kept complaining. Someone was locked in the room next door because they kept rattling and I couldn't seem to get out. So the guy comes up with the uh, pass key, opens up the door, and there's nobody there. And when they step back outside, the door slammed and the, lock, the, the latch rattled and it was locked again. So who knows what was in there at one time. But it's an interesting story. It is um, an interesting story. Yeah, it's and there's there's lots of situations where people have spotted ghosts, seen ghosts. You, if if you're a, a ghost hunter of any kind, you know that water seems to be a a, a solidifying factor for ghosts. Okay. A lot of ghost happenings happen near water. A lot of ghost sightings happen near water. A lot of ha hauntings happen near water. I think probably the most haunted place that I have visited would have to be Seshwal Lighthouse in the northern reaches of Lake, Ante uh, Lake Michigan. Um, it's spelled, if you look it up, S-O-E-L-C-H-O-I-X, but it's French, so it's pronounced Seshwa. It got its name from the French voyageurs, the uh, fur trappers, uh, who ran these huge, you know, ship-sized canoes, and they would come into the Great Lakes, harvest the, the, the pelts, and take them back out through the Great Lakes. And to do that, you gotta go up through northern Lake Michigan, and turn the corner to get through the straits. And these guys got trapped in a storm one time coming through there. And they paddled like heck to get to the shore. And they, it, Seshwa Harbor is a perfect protection for them from the lake. They just, they kept saying, Seshwa, Seshwa, our only chance, our only hope, our last hope. And they made it. So they named the place Seshwa, which is a lot better than some of the other namings that happen around the Great Lakes. <laughs> so, so, okay. So they, um, they called it Seshwa. Eventually, the government built a lighthouse there. Um, very beautiful lighthouse. It has been. It has since, thankfully, fallen into the hands of the Gulliver Historical Society, who has turned it probably into the most primo lighthouse museum in the entire Great Lakes. They didn't plan on it being haunted. They just wanted the museum turf of it. Uh, they were one of the first ones that, under the GOA program that we got the governors to buy for a dollar 
from the government and then turned over to them. That was one of our big claims to victory uh, in our lighthouse activism days. Anyway, there has been lots of sightings of the ghost. The ghost is the former lighthouse keeper who died a terrible death, a very slow and agonizing death of what they now conclude probably to be stomach cancer. And he died in one of the upstairs rooms. Now, you know, if, if you read about this stuff at all, they always drape the mirrors in Victorian homes when someone dies. Do you remember why? They do that so the ghost does not become trapped in the mirror. Right. Because that, that was always a fear and a contention is that's what would happen. But that's apparently what has happened to this poor lighthouse keeper. Uh, there is a PBS station in the Midland area uh, Michigan, I believe. I have not seen the tape, but they actually had and televised a tape that they had taken in the mirror. And it's a, it's it takes hours for it to form and disform, but it all of a sudden the the glass will change, and the image in the glass becomes swirled, and you can see, excuse me, a very agonized, pain-ridden, squealing face. It looks like something from the scream, and uh, it forms in the mirror. And then over about the same length of time, it passes away. Uh, the lighthouse keeper has been seen out of the corner of the eye, so to speak, so many times. He also is known to change the silverware setting on the tables. They set the table as if someone's about ready to come in for dinner because they want to portray life as it was in the lighthouse. And the lighthouse keeper was Irish, and they are not. And so they tend to put silverware on the table the way we do, which is spoons up, forks up, knives flat. And uh, the Irish do it the other way around, tines down, spoons down. And they come in the morning, silverware has been all arranged. The, uh, the, the, the songbook, the hymns, have been changed on top of the, uh, the piano. Uh, but the one that always gets me is, uh, and Marilyn told me this, the, uh, the head of the his Gulliver Historical Society. Uh, wonderful woman has done a fantastic job up there. But she's the one who tells me people come in on a regular basis to say, boy, we're looking forward to this visit. You got all these free creators around here dressed like, you know, this and that. Oh, and Lighthouse Keeper. We saw the guy that does the Lighthouse Keeper. He's on the road, just just up the road, just a hundred yards or so. They don't have any. What they saw was a ghost. And the ghost of the Lighthouse Keeper wandering the grounds of the lighthouse. So interesting stories there. Uh, boy, where else could I go? You want the what? scary stuff? Well, why do you think lighthouses are haunted? I mean, we have a, a few on the West Coast here that, that are haunted. It just seems like, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's everywhere. It's on the East Coast. It's Great Lakes. It's California. You know, anywhere where there's, where there's like you see, where there's water. But why, why do you think Again, that's yeah. water? Two, it's a place of great emotional stress and strain. Do you, li do you like the cuckoo clock? That's kind of, I don't know if, yeah, it, it's part of my life. It sets the tone for the rest of the interview, doesn't it? My mother and father had musical clocks in their other house all over the place. Love it. Well, my grandfather, is, again, ham radio has been a part of my family for about 100 years. And my grandfather, the original W8GJK, could not have a ham shack without a cuckoo clock in it. And it's a tradition I proudly carry on. So anyway, now that you've heard the cuckoo clock, um, first of all, there's water. Second of all, they are places of great stress and uh, emotional strain. Uh, lighthouses are usually the last place many people who die on the water are trying to get to. 
They are the place where many people who are waiting for those to come home from the sea will wait for them, sometimes fruit, you know, fruitlessly. Uh, that's why I think a lot of them are, are, are uh, haunted. The one up at Big Bay Lighthouse is haunted, uh, I think out of guilt. Uh, there, the lighthouse keeper was a very, very hard taskmaster. Master. Uh, he gave his assistant lighthouse keeper, who was his only son, an extremely hard time and drove the kid pretty, pretty, rode him pretty hard. And apparently in one winter day, the kids slipped and fell on the cement steps leading up from Big Bay. If you've ever been to Big Bay Lighthouse, it's up on a hill, on a bluff, and the lake's down there. And he was bringing wood up from below and supplies up from below that had come in from the lighthouse service. And uh, he slipped on the steps and fell and, and really, really injured his leg. Eventually, his son died of the infection in the leg. He felt so guilty that um, he committed suicide, but didn't know exactly how he wanted to do it. He was last seen carrying a shotgun, a rope, and a bottle of poison going off into the woods. And no one ever saw him alive again. Several months later, hunters going through the west of the woods there found his head hanging in a tree in a noose with what was left of his body down below. And apparently the bears had been playing pinata with him. And so that's, that's, that was when he died. He tends to walk all around the, uh, the lighthouse. He's seen, he's seen standing out on the lawn. He's seen standing on the bluff. He visits the rooms at night. My own aunt, who was extremely admitted, she was a sensitive. Uh, she and her husband uh, spent the night there one night. And in the middle of the night, all of a sudden, she woke up. And standing at the foot of the bed was this green phosphorescent image of she called a sea captain. And she said, he seemed as surprised to see her as she was. And he backed up a step, turned and walked right out through the wall. And she never saw him again. And, but he was a sea captain. I said, well, are you sure about, oh, I'm positive he was a sea captain. Well, in those days, the only difference between a sea captain's uniform and a lighthouse keeper's uniform were the lapel pins. Did he have cross telescopes? Did he have crossed anchors? And that's the only difference. So she probably saw the, the lighthouse keeper without a doubt. Um, but there's a lot of stories. And that's why I think you see a lot of that with lighthouses. Water is always associated. And it doesn't have to be a lighthouse. It can be a town or a village. Um, gee, you want me to go right into Captain Swayze? Why not? We're here now. Go for it. Because you know what I'm okay. trying to do is I think with the lighthouse, too, comes so much responsibility to keep that light on, to keep that light on, to guide those ships. And there's probably some, you know, at times there's guilt, you know, there's, there could be guilt there and or or they're still feeling after they die they're still feeling that responsibility oh i thoroughly agree i thoroughly agree and so there's the stress and the strain on the lighthouse keeper stress and strain of the people on the shore stress and strain of the, of the ship owners stress and strain of the crew who didn't make it yeah there's and everyone's looking for that light that's the center of the whole story is everyone's looking for the lighthouse but it doesn't have to be just a lighthouse um there's a little place love this town Go shopping there if you can. Stay the weekend. Niagara-on-the-Lake, Ontario. It's on the Canadian shoreline. Uh, it's just upriver, or actually it's downriver. It's north of but downriver from Niagara Falls. Uh, about a 15-minute drive. It is one of the most British little towns in Canada you will find. And there are a lot of them. As you travel around Canada, you find a lot of Canadian towns that are, gee, just like they here are in the U.S., and then there are towns in Canada you go into. Those are towns for the Canadians. Um, if you go into McDonald's in some of these towns and order French fries, 
they come with gravy on them because that's the way the British eat their French fries and the chefs is with gravy. If you order coffee regular, it's going to come with cream in it because that's the way everyone drinks it. If you want a black house specifically, you're black. And dare I say, I hope I don't offend anyone. If you go into one of the restaurants, never, ever, ever ask for the waitress to bring you a napkin. Because in can in, in the Canadian part of Canada, a napkin refers solely to a sanitary napkin, right, and it puts you what you want. Yeah, what you want is a serviette, and right. that's what you want as a serviette for for the table usage. Anyway, um, so this is one of those towns in Canada that is just absolutely as British as you can find. Uh, there is actually one place in town that does fly the Union Jack as opposed to the Canadian Maple Leaf. Um, and that's the Old Angel Inn. That is recognized by the Canadian government to be the most haunted place in Upper Canada. And the owners want nothing to do with don't scare our ghost away because he's their bread and butter. But their ghost, there's actually two ghosts in the place that they know of for sure. Uh, one is a cat. Uh, one is a cat who will come and sit on your bed on the foot of your bed and sleep there during the night after you've gone to bed for the night. Of course, you don't know how the cat got in there, but you know, oh, it's nice. There's a cat on the bed. Don't move it. Uh, in the morning, the cat's gone. Well, there's no cat in residence there and it hasn't been in 50, 60 years. Well, now it's probably 70 years by now, but, uh, that's the, per there's a, there's a cat that haunts the place looking for affection. Uh, but the major ghost that haunts the place is that of Captain Swayze, a British officer who served at Fort George on the, on the Canadian side of the river during the War of 1812. And during the War of 1812, the Niagara River was as affluent a border as, you know, it was who's, who's in control of it today? Well, we'll have to check because it would change hands overnight on a regular basis. Um, on one particular occasion, Captain Swayze was known to be having a liaison with the innkeeper's daughter at what was then called the Harmonious Coach House. It's now called the Old Angel Inn uh, Corners of Regent and Market Streets, I think. And um, it, as much as it was 250 years ago. Um, but they've been serving grog there and everything else since the mid-1700s. It was the coach house stuff on the on the coach yards, uh, on, the, on the stagecoach lines. The... Um, Captain Swayze was visiting his girlfriend when the Americans led a surprise attack. Captain Swayze was captured and didn't make it back to Fort George where he'd be protected. And the story is that he was captured. He was tortured in front of the fireplace in the main room, uh, taken down to the basement, and eventually stood up against the wall and shot. And, of course, the rumor is also that as long as the Union Jack flies above the door at the old angel, Captain Sweezy keeps his shenanigans to the first floor. But if the, if the Union Jack can't be seen, he, he'll roam the whole hotel. Well, my wife and I stayed one night in there. Um, we've stayed there a couple, three times in the cottages. That we actually got to stay one night in one of the rooms. Uh, I don't know if you want that story or not. <laughs> I don't know if she's still if she's still out there. I don't know. Um, <laughs> did you read this story about me, my wife, and that darn ghost? I did. I want to hear it. Yeah. Tell everybody. Tell everybody. Okay. Okay. This is this is how that went. So, my wife and I take a weekend vacation, a long weekend. It's it's um their Thanksgiving, but Canada Day. It's uh, end of October, and we're going to stay at the Angel Inn. we become quite good friends with the owner, and he gave us a, a nice big, what they called a suite back then. We had a room with a double bed in it, 
through the window. Of course, there was an air conditioner heater that they'd added into the wall uh, just below the window. And that's right where the window was. There was a spotlight because that was on the spotlight was on the Union Jack so that Captain Sweezy would know to stay downstairs. And uh, we stayed in that room. Then we had a small connecting bathroom. I mean small. I am not a small man. This is a small bathroom. And on the other side was, in essence, our sitting room. And there was, it was another long, narrow room like the one we had with the sofa in it. Uh, and on the end table, on the other side of the bathroom door was the TV set. And you could lay in bed, look through the bathroom, watch TV. Who could want more? So we're going to stay the night there. And um, it's, my wife's very concerned about closing the curtains in the, in the, in the other room because there might be peeping toms at the second floor <laughs> of in, in late October on the Ontario Peninsula that might be 20 feet tall. You never know. So she closes up the curtains and no one can see us and we get into bed. And um, about two, two o'clock in the morning, she gets up to use the facilities and she slowly tiptoes over the bathroom, turns on the light switch and there's no light. The power is out. That's why it's a little chilly in here now because the, the little heater in the wall is no longer working. And the first thing I thought of, well, hold it. That means the spotlight's out. Uh, how well does this Union Jack have to be visible to keep Captain Swayze to his own? Um, so I said, well, she brought candles and, and so on that you're not supposed to use in the hotel. She didn't know that, but she brought them anyway. I said, maybe we should light one of those candles. She said, well, why don't you go get one? I said, they're in your bags in the other room. Go, why don't you go get And she she just absolutely bit her tongue. She stomped her feet a little bit. And with everything she could muster, every bit of suffragette pride, she said, you're the man. <laughs> go get the candles. I said, okay, but you got to come with me. So here I am. I won't go into great detail, but I, I've got these 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 nylon sleepy shorts that she bought me from the Avon lady that had Daffy Duck and, and Santa hats all over them. This must turn women on. I don't know. You'll have to tell me. But here I am in my my Daffy pants. Um, and that's it. And I'm going to go into, into the bathroom and we're going to find this this candle that she has put on the other side of the door, on the other side of, in the other room. She's holding me by the arm. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm anchored here. So we're, we're moving forward. And I can't see my hand in front of my face because I realized she closed the door on the other side. So I reached over and in the darkness and I gave it a push. And this, I swear, they got this door from an old movie from the 1940s. This door creaked open. And finally bumped against the wall. And that's when I realized I had no circulation in my left arm anymore. She she had no idea that I'd reached out and hit this with my hand. She thought it'd done it all on its own. And she was terrified and gripping my arm so tight blood wouldn't circulate. She said, she said, did you do that? And with every ounce of strength, I swear I tried to say yes. But it came out, no. Did you? Well, that was the start of that. She started to scream, but nothing came out. <laughs> she was grabbing my arm so tight that I was afraid she was going to take it with her. Her, her feet were going 100 miles an hour, but she was anchored to me. She was going nowhere, and I thought she would have ripped my arm off. And finally I said, oh, 
Oh, the door? Yeah, I did that. <laughs> I, I thought I, I was going to die that night. Exactly. Anyway, we, <laughs> we did exactly. finally go. Yep. Exactly. We did. Uh, okay. Go okay. We did go and get the candles, put one yeah. in the sink so it would be safe and lit one, and guarded that thing all night long. Somewhere about 5 o'clock in the morning, the power came back on. The heater kicked in, and, and there was the floodlight, and you could see the flag. So, yeah, it's um, it is known to be a haunted place, but that's that's a personal story. They've had stories emanating from there, from where uh, the, the guy who closes the bar at night, waiting for his wife to come pick him up because she's a bartender on the other side of town, and he's hearing all sorts of noise from the back dining room. He goes back there, and the furniture is all disarranged, it's like there's been a party. And this is like two or three trips back there. One time it's fine. Next time it's all disarranged. His wife helps him put it back together. And as they leave, they realize the Union Jack over the doorway is missing. It's not uncommon for tourists to snatch that thing in the middle of the night. So it happens. Now, what else? Well, when you look through your book, because your book is fascinating. Story after story. I, I mean, I, I, I cannot put it down. I love it. What what story inspires you the most? Um, there's there's a lot of stories of real heroics in here. Mm -hmm. I mean, heroic stories, and there's some of just pure joy and love. I think though, I think we've been talking about scary and strange stuff. Sure. I think the one that um, that has always inspired me somewhat is um, I got the story from a good friend of mine I worked with in the advertising industry. He used to work at one of the radio stations downtown in the Fisher Building. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but back in the 1930s, a number of the nationwide radio shows like the Load Ranger and those things originated from Detroit. And that's where they'd play them. And what they would do was, the, especially for the Lone Ranger, they had recorded these discs of, of the of the William Tell Overture and the voiceover of the, the Thundering Hook Beast da, 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 and the stuff you're familiar with. And they play the record while the actors took their place around the microphone and then they do the stage play. And that's how they did the, the Lone Ranger. And they did it up on one of the high floors of the Fisher Building. Back in the 1960s, they're renovating. It's now a different radio station. And they find a Waldorf closet someone had just said well just put a wall over and they can they find all these sound effect tools from the radio days they thought they found a box of transcription records well that didn't take long to dash them down the hallway to the hi-fi guy and they were putting these records on the hi-fi uh, and listening to them and suddenly you can hear the thundering hoofbeats in the bell days of yesteryear and right in the middle of that you can hear bells bells would come and go bells would come and go and they're going what what the hell's the bells and the guy who was the janitor who'd been there since before there was hair, this guy says, oh, that's, that's the Woodward trolley. <laughs> he captured the bells of the Woodward trolley, which means that the recording devices of the 1930s were far better than the reproduction devices they had of the 1930s because in a modern, well, modern, mid-1960s stereo set, you could hear the, the trolleys go off again. And these bells had been riding in there silently for, what, 30, 40 years. How time flies. It's, um, I love that story because it, it, it brings a, a touch of it back 
to actually to you. Uh, another story that I love dearly is um, the day Dave bombed Detroit. Um, we got time for this one? Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Back during World War II, um, the British really quickly decided that it was safer to train bomber crews in Canada than over the North Atlantic because there were Nazis there, but not in Canada. So they would, the RIF was sending their best over here for training sessions. And there was this guy named Dave. Now I met Dave on a cruise ship that goes through the, the, the Trent Severn waterway. And, and the, there's a, there's a waterway of lakes and streams and locks and everything that transgresses the Trent, the, the Canadian um, uh, peninsula. And you can take this rather rustic cruise ship through it. Everyone eats like friendly family diner style. Everyone sleeps in bunk beds in separate rooms. It's, it's a fun trip. Absolutely great. It's called the Kawartha Voyager, part of Ontario Waterway Cruises. And um, this guy uh, had come over during the war and was teaching navigation to the bomber crews out of Sarnia, Ontario. Sarnia across from Port Huron at the southern end of Lake Huron and uh, still north of Detroit. And I want you to remember that the, the British joined the war in 1939, and we waited until December 41. So they were much more experienced at it than we were when we first came in. So here it is, I guess, this is the spring of 42. And uh, the American commander in Detroit calls up the RAF and says, would you mind scrambling your bombers and, and making a, a mock bombing run on Detroit so we can scramble our interceptor fighters and catch them. It would be great training. They said, oh, this would be great. This would be wonderful. So the um, Dave took it as a serious assignment, and, and he, he worked with his crew. And what you would do is you just wouldn't fly to the target. You would zigzag a course across the Ontario Peninsula. You cut across part of Lake Erie, come in, and even though you started, you know, 60 miles north, you would attack Detroit from the southeast. And that's what they did. Well, the Americans didn't know this. The Americans are already halfway to Sarnia going, come on, we're waiting for you. And Dave and his crew gets there and nobody's home. They have, they have scored an astounding victory, but no way to prove it. Well, actually, to prove it. The planes were filled with cargo that had just come over from England, supplies for the for the soldiers there. Now, England exports many wonderful products and, and people love a lot of English things, but toilet paper is not one of them. The, the British guys would much rather buy what they could get locally, but the rule says you shall use what the Crown provides first. And they had an airplane, a, a Lancaster bomber, full of toilet paper. So they used it. They circled back around and they loaded all the Bombay doors with toilet paper. And as they went over to Detroit, they let go. To this day, Detroit is the largest American city that has ever been TP'd. And as soon as this happened, angry voices appeared on the radio. They were just getting yelled at. There was all sorts of, they, they hightailed it back home, but they went the course the way they came. Took a while to get there. When they landed in Sarnia, there was a Jeep waiting for Dave take him to the commanding officer's office. And um, he got in there and he says, you have really embarrassed our friends, the Americans. You can never do this again. I want to discipline you, but he says, but well done. And it's just a great story. I heard it from the man who did it. At the time, he was probably 75 years old. And he had married a Canadian woman and decided never to go home to England. So that's the day Dave bombed Detroit. 
What else can I tell you about? Was it hard to decide which stories to put in the book? Because you probably Um, had more material than you had book space, right? Well, you know, actually, I I had unlimited book space. I could have made a lot more. But I used what I thought were the best stories that I had written. Uh, that uh, I didn't want to use the ones that my uh, my compatriots had, had written. That'd be kind of like stealing their material. So these are the ones that I've written. And so it's at the bottom by Bruce Jundy. See that there? So now I don't know how much time you have to a lot, but uh, I'd like to plug my other books. Do it. Go for it. You sure? Yeah. Okay. Go for it. I, I started sure. writing fiction. I started writing fiction, and the first fiction story I wrote was what I thought was a short story. Turns out it was a novella called Benny, and it's an interesting supernatural story uh, about a, an old man dying in a nursing home. But at night, he still dreams he's a hero. But is it a dream? Really interesting story. It is still one of my wife's favorites. Um, after that, I wrote a really creepy story named Kevin. Can you see Kevin there? Yeah. Kevin is the story about a young, it's, it's got, a, I like to write with a lot of humor, but this one is not a story for the faint of heart. Uh, this one, invo- I wanted to create a villain in the story that was so despicable that everyone who read the story would have no doubt that whatever happened to this villain was too good. And I was told I accomplished it several times over. Um, Kevin is the story of a young man who is a complete consumer. Um, The first part is actually quite humorous about, you know, his parents were never had time for him. They just bought him presents. Um, They, uh, if they thought they missed his birthday, uh, they'd leave him a gift card and he just go to GameStop and video uh, blockbuster every day. And he would get movies and video games. That was his life. Um, they, they never missed the fact that he didn't graduate from high school. They thought they just missed it. The thing is, he just quit going. And one day, he stepped off a corner with his Game Boy in his hand and stepped in front of a bus. Wow. And he's dead. And he winds up in the devil's office. Now, when I write about Satan or the devil, he's a real person. He sits in an office behind a desk. Scary looking place, but it's there. And so now here's Kevin and, you know, he's, he's, he's got a dilemma because the, um, he was told that he's down here because, because God didn't want him because he hadn't done anything yet to really prove what kind of person he was. And the problem he's got is the devil is telling him that he doesn't really want him either because he hasn't done anything really bad yet. And so he's, but he's, he's given Kevin the chick because you, if you don't, you'll be caught in the middle. And if you, to be caught in the middle with no place to go, either up or down is the worst thing possible. So he sends Kevin back to his life as a ghost so that he can find something, something he did that would make him good enough to get into hell. But when he gets back, he finds out that one of the worst terrors, one of the most terrible things that could possibly happen has been going on right underneath his nose. And now that he's a ghost, he can see it. He has to make a moral decision. Should he do what Satan has told him to do and find a reason that he's good enough to get into hell? Or should he squander this chance, take a risk at purgatory forever, and do what he thinks is the right thing? And it's quite a rewarding story. And as much as is, it's, there's some terrible things in it, um, it's funny. <laughs> My wife laughed all the way through it. So I wrote that. 
And then I actually have an original copy here because this is the old cover. They don't have that anymore. It's just, oh, this is the new one. I wrote a, I was going to write a, a, a book of short stories named after the first character. The title of the, each story would be the major character in the book. We had Benny, we had Kevin, and then we had Reggie. And Reggie was the story of a, of a uh, rock and roll star from the 60s and 70s who now was facing death. He was riddled with cancer, but of course to have the big career, he'd signed the deal with the devil. And now he was having to, to face that. Uh, and that's when he meets uh, the, uh, a gal named Angela, who happens to be the head of a very, very unusual coven of witches, very modern witchcraft, stuff that I saw and experienced and heard tell about when I was traveling upstate New York. Um, most cases, uh, if you if you encounter a witch and you go you go to town and go oh, we have a witch who want to do this for your Halloween story meet our witch and she's a gal dressed in black with a pointy hat and she goes hi I'm a witch she's probably not she's playing witch and having a great time doing so um, the one you want to watch is the one who's quietly brewing stuff on the back burners of her stove not saying what it is and those are the ones to and that's based on the premise that um, the witches. As we know them, this image we have of a witch with a green nose and a big wart and so on, that was presented to us by the Catholic Church back in the in the Middle Ages because they wanted you to use their doctors. See, the Roman Empire collapsed. They were the only organization who could to could step into the void, and they were the only ones who could train doctors, which is what the world needed most at that time. But they wanted you to use their doctors. Well, their doctors were also hand-tied by the fact that, well, you know, you can't touch the patients. You can stand an arm through the bedclothes and that's all you have to because we got to be decent about this you can't you can't see the naked people um the midwives though had a much better record of saving people's lives because that's what they could do you know a midwife you know it's i hate to sound sexist about it but a man can only go so far in life when it comes into the bedroom a woman can go anywhere women see everybody naked guys don't that's the way it works so midwives were the were the healers of the era and so the catholic church started painting them as witches to help the popularity of their own doctors and uh, you know you burn enough of them at the stake and eventually they go underground so the premise of this book was that um these witches had gone underground a thousand years ago and in the course of time they'd uh, they'd made some improvements and advancements and it's really it's there's a lot of humor and but you better have a handkerchief at the end i'll tell you that it it was supposed to be called reggie it became angela's coven and it's still available of course on, on uh, amazon and barnes noble but a angela's coven became my first novel uh it won a couple of awards sold pretty well at first and then the publisher said well you know you gotta have a trilogy so i started right then there was the great northern coven and I think really the best one of the whole series was amazing how I have all these. It's the Ragtime Coven. And this was a book of great research and history about World War One. This is the prequel to Angela's Coven about how Angela got the way she was. Um, they are not Harry Potter books by any means. Uh, they are books about, about witchcraft in the natural world. Um, during the course of writing the... Um, the Ragtime Coven, which is really a double book. It's, it's, it's well over 600 pages. Um, 
I had a couple of incidences in my life, one of which my, my younger cousin, who was more like a brother, suddenly passed away. Mm-hmm. And um, what, um, what my cousins, my cousins, Kathy and, and Jim, were, um, grew up with us more like brother and sister to me and my older brother. Uh, we were always spending summers at the grandparents' cottage on, on Big Pine Island Lake. And um, they were going to decremate Jim, and they were going to bury his ashes in the family cemetery plot in Deepdale. And I looked at Kathy, and I said, no, we, we can't do this. Mm-hmm. And she, she understood. And we got the funeral director to save us out a cup of ashes. So we took, a, as soon as the funeral was over and we buried Jim's ashes, we took this cup of ashes and my brother, her remaining brother, and I, we hopped in the car and we drove up to Big Pine Island Lake. Now my grandparents no longer own this cottage. That's kind of a technicality. Um, so we waited when they weren't around and we went down to the front yard right there and we scattered Jim's ashes on their front lawn. And threw some roses in the water and it seemed appropriate. I mean, Jim, Jim was always on that front lawn. We'd sit there in that cottage and watch the hill to see if people would be coming down because the, they had to come down the hill all the way around the lake. We could see him coming. And that was a big pastime when we were a kid. Um, but we did the, and it felt right. And then later when, when Kathy's mother died, well, we, we did it then too. In fact, we've been using these people's front lawn as a cemetery for several years now. They have no idea. Um, finally, about a year ago, friends of ours, their daughter-in-law, bought the place. And, of course, she'd already read My Father's Ashes. So she, she knew that she'd bought our, <coughs> our family's illegal cemetery plot. Um, but that, that's, that's the, how that story got started. I started to wonder about, well, if something happened to me, where would I want mine scattered? My Father's Ashes is... I'll frankly say the best thing I've ever written. It won several awards. Um, it's the one people still want to interview me about. It is the story of a young man whose life has been all planned out for him. Uh, he's going to have the big corner office in his fiance's father's business. He's going to take golf lessons. Um, his mother, who sheltered him, for, he never knew his father growing up. Never knew his father. And at one time was told he was dead. And... Um, He's all set to begin this life. And one day, the phone rings, and it's the lawyer. And the lawyer said that his father has passed away, and there's an inheritance. But if he wants it, he has to be responsible for, for uh, scattering his father's ashes. Mm-hmm. And under the most unique circumstances you can imagine, this sets this kid off on a cross-country adventure. Uh from here to, to scatter ashes one little glass at a time and to, to, to scatter his dad's ashes. And the whole point is, it's not where you scatter the ashes. It's who you meet along the way. And that's what the story, he, he gets to know his father for the very first time through the eyes and ears of his best friends. And it's just, it's, it's a hilarious story in many cases. But by God, you better have the, a box of Kleenex handy because every time I read the last chapter or two, I need it. And I wrote the book. So, but that is, this is, this is the one that um, does a lot for me. This is, 
This is uh, My Father's Ashes, A Young Man's Journey Through His Father's Life. And I can tell you there are Easter eggs in that book galore. Every address is a real address, though it's been moved. Um, every There are people's real names throughout there, although they're not in the role you'd think they'd be in. Uh, they all signed uh, releases to allow me to use their name as such. And um, there are places that I've had people come over to my cottage out on the lake, never met me, never, never been to the cottage, come over and sit down on the deck and go, I've been here. No, you haven't. You've never been. It's in the book. They read about it. They knew where this was, that was, because it was described in the book. So, yeah, interesting reading. So I, I want to thank you for the book plug. But Heroes and Haunts of the Great Lakes is a great book. Everyone who reads it tells me they love it. That is a great book. And I, you know, I'm going to tell my, my listeners flat out, I couldn't put it down. I was so into it. So uh, you know, that's why I wanted to have you on because I wanted to talk to you about and hear you tell the stories personally. There's nothing like having the author tell the stories. Well, unless he's hoarse from getting over the crud, whatever the crud is, we never get thoroughly tested for that. Right. But um, the voice is usually a, a nice resonant tone. In fact, I, I, these days I do a little singing. I play a lot of guitar. I played guitar since I was a kid. You can see in the back wall that there's lots of music going on there. And uh, we sit on the deck and we do the folk thing quite a bit on weekends and at the cottage. And uh, so, yeah, there's, there's a lot going on in life, even when you're retired. But I quit the book business and I'll tell you why. At my level, I'm not Stephen King. I'm not James Patterson. Um, <clears throat> but you still got to do some sort of a book tour to help promote the book and bring the sales through. And these days that means Barnes and Noble. Now Barnes and Noble is a corporation and a company. They are just absolutely wonderful and bent over backwards to help me. But at my level, there are so many of their store managers who have their own books sitting in a drawer and look at you with why you and not me. Right. And, <clears throat> The last book signing I did, I decided this is it. I've had enough. I quit. And the um, I've never done one since. And it was for my father's ashes. And I was in this Barnes & Noble store in, in a major city not too far from here. And um, he just gave me hell about, I don't want to see you talking to your friends. I want to see you out there hawking those books. You are taking valuable floor space out of my floor, out of my store. I need to make it pay. And he was just, for, for the two and a half hours I was there, he made my life hell. And I know we did well. We sold, you know, he bought a case of books and half of them were gone before the thing has even started. And we went through his books and we sold the case I brought with me. I got a letter a couple of weeks after the event coming to find out it's the biggest book signing this store had ever had. But all the time I was ridden shotgun by that um, store manager. And I figured, you know what? This is not worth it. Um, right. And plus, I don't want to go through the thing of going, well, I've got a, I've got two other book ideas sitting on my hard drive right now. They have been there for years. Um, my wife tells me they're wonderful stories. You should write them. And I said, well, you know, I don't want to put one out there and have them say, God, it's a great book. Not as good as your last one, but not a bad book. So, you know what? This, when you get, when you, it's like Tom Brady should equip for the Super Bowl ring 10 times. Um, rather than try to come back again. That one won a lot of awards. It got a lot of attention. And uh, 
it was very gratifying to uh, to meet a lot of people through that book. So I wrapped it up with my father's ashes until I figured out that we could have a congressional trail court. Yeah. That's where we wrote that one. Okay. Is there anything else I can answer for you? Any story? I don't know what your time limit is. I think that's it. And uh, I know it's late for you on your end, too. I really enjoyed this, and I would love to have you on again to talk to you. Well, let me know when and what you want to talk about, because we kind of covered the gamut tonight pretty well, I think. Absolutely. How can people I hope your listeners... Or do you want people reaching you, or, or are you just gone completely retired? Well, I'm retired. Um, in fact, my intention is I have a small recording studio, portable recording studio, in my closet here. I'm going to make an album. And I've been saying that for years now. And I have yet to really get going on it. But the music's getting better and better, so who knows? Um, you can reach me through my Facebook page, Bruce Genvey, I'm Visible. Bruce, J-E-N-V-E-Y. Uh, you can find me through Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Amazon. If you buy a book, Amazon will get it to you a lot because Barnes & Noble buys it from Amazon and then sells it to you. Um, uh, I, I live in western Michigan. Uh, and if you read My Father's Ashes, you may figure out where. There you go. It's, it's in there someplace. I live in the, um, no no, no kidding here, I do live in the red flannel underwear capital of the world. And that's a fact. You can look it up. You and so, I have something in common. I have a recording studio in my closet, too. That's where I'm broadcasting from. Well, so I don't broadcast from. I got a multi-channel mixer, and I'm going to get three or four guitars going. Is we're going to do like McCartney's first album. He played all the instruments himself. Absolutely. And that's yeah. that's the I intention. Kinds, I got all kinds of toys too. I just I just primarily broadcast, you know. But uh, I'm so glad I got to talk to you. I really appreciate you coming on. Well, you know how to reach me if you decide you want to do this again on a different sure. topic. Give give your give your readers some breather space. You know, because we don't want to, we don't want to scare them away. Right. But from as as you said in your in your letter, from Hawaii to the UK, UK, where I have my distant step, she is my my step, my goddaughter, my step goddaughter, mm -hmm. Sarah Booth. Hey, how are you? <laughs> she lives in Northern Wales, not too far from Liddypool. And uh, she was born in America, but, but was moved over there at a younger age. And we connected at the de after the death of my aunt. So, That's my aunt who saw the ghost. So, anyway, anything else I can answer for you? Any feedback you get? Hey, sh share my way. Uh, but no, I had, uh, I got to tell you, in all honesty, one of the scariest moments in my life was when I was running Great Lakes Cruiser Magazine. And we had published the first Stupid Boat Tricks book, oh, which was boy. a... It was a column that ran every month in the magazine, which never was labeled, but was called Stupid Boat Tricks. And um, we published that first book. And we lived in a, in a good-sized house. We, we lived high off the hog in those days. And we lived in a pretty good-sized house in Royal Oak, uh, down by the Detroit area. And um, one day there was a knock at the door. And... My office was part of the house. It was an addition on the back of the house. And there's a guy at the door. And he wants to know if I'm Bruce Genvey. And I cautiously said yes. Well, he was a avid fan of the magazine and kind of pushed his way into what he wanted to talk to. He wanted to meet Bruce Genvey. He wanted to talk with me. And we spent about two hours there talking, me keeping an eye on things. Because, you know, 
you never know when someone really strange may may come in and just you know suddenly remember the guy who killed John Lennon thought he was John Lennon and only wanted to meet the guy who thought he was John Lennon. So yeah, I kept an eye out for that. I had a wiener dog on my lap. That'll protect you every time. So, but I will say thank you so much for having me. Any feedback you get, pass it along. Absolutely. People who didn't, people who didn't like it, eh, stuff it. <laughs> you, you know, you don't, you don't know good humor when you read it. There you go. All right, sir. Well, you have a good rest of the evening, and thank you again. Thank, I really appreciate. Thank you it. so much. Bye right. bye. Bye bye. Well, that was terrific, and uh, I like I said, if you if, if you want to read a good book, get that book because it is something. It's something to read, and you know, I, I like like I said, my dad grew up in Cleveland, so I, I you know he told me stories, and I also growing up here, Sacramento River, there were a lot of stories out here, you know, like that. Uh, like, like, like the mailmen that used to go up up and down the river to the houseboats and deliver mail and things like that. You know, there's, there's always wonderful stories around water. Anyway, tomorrow, shifting gears a little bit, uh, Bill Dolan is going to be on with us. And Bill Dolan is the curator, uh, well, actually the president and the, crea- I guess the, the gentleman that created a history museum in Colorado. And the history museum is for dinosaurs. So he's going to be with us tomorrow to talk about dinosaur history and things like that and how he keeps people, how he wants to keep the interest up with young kids and and and, and, and adults alike, right? You know, where he, he'll take, he also has another program where he takes people on, on digs to get them interested in paleontology. So it should be an interesting interview tomorrow night. Um, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, Share it with five people anyway, or equal opportunity here. If you're watching from Facebook, please hit that uh, follow button. If you're watching from Twitch, please hit that follow button. And if you're on YouTube again, please hit that subscribe button. We're always looking for new subscribers. Anyway, I want to thank everybody for coming tonight. And um, again, visit us at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. And uh, also, you see that thing flashing down along the bottom. I call it a thing, but you know, it's one of those t- thicker uh, ticker things like they have on CNN, right? CNN Elgin Network. I call them a big network, as if. Anyway, what that is is that uh, California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team doesn't take money for investigations. We never have and never will. But because I'm the owner, obviously there's expenses involved with it, along with the radio show. So everything that we do as far as going on investigations come out, comes out of my pocket primarily. Gas, you know, equipment that the team uses. Especially here, you know, I've got the computer going. Like I told him, I've got a mini recording studio here. So I've got EQs, I've got all all little toys and gadgets and stuff here to keep this thing running. And if something goes out, I have to buy it out of pocket. And uh, so I can use, you know, a little help to keep the show on the air and keep keep my group going. If if you find it in your heart to do that, that would be great. I'd appreciate it. That's at paypal.me at California Haunts. Or if you don't like PayPal, Venmo at California. Venmo, California Haunts. It's that easy. Just type in California Haunts. But it would help me pay the bills. Here I have internet just like, just like you. I have internet bills and other stuff. Anyway, I want to thank you guys for coming. And I will see you tomorrow. Now I'm going to go ahead and uh, show you his book cover again. And if any, you can get that book and all the other books on Amazon. Okay? So here we go with the book. So that's Heroes and Haunts of the Great Lakes. By Bruce Jenby.
Excuse me. Long day. <laughs> oh my gosh, I put the wrong one in. Look at that. Hang on a second. I'm so sorry. Okay, let me put that one in. Okay, Heroes in the Lost in the Great Lakes. I wonder why I just sat there and sat there. Uh, by Bruce Genvy. And the other books as well that, 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 he, that he mentioned. And, of course, they're all available at Amazon.com and Barnes & Noble. <laughs> On that note, I'm going to go before something else goes wrong. Have a good night, guys.